0: Welcome to the GoTo Podcast. Each episode covers the brightest and boldest ideas from the world's leading experts in software development. Tune in for practical lessons, compelling theories, and plenty of inspiration. GoTo gathers the brightest minds in the software community to help developers tackle projects today, plan for tomorrow, and create a better future. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events held online and in person in cities like Amsterdam, London, Copenhagen, and Chicago, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conference's YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech.
1: Hi, I'm Hannes from a company called Access in Belgium, and I'm sitting here at GoToArhu's with uh, Ole. Ole, can you uh, introduce yourself to the audience? Yes, so I'm Ole working at a company called GitHub,
2: where the world collaborates on software. Um, I've been there for uh, a couple of years, also doing NPM work. So um, GitHub acquired NPM a couple of years ago, so I've been doing work there, previously doing Work in Microsoft, also Trifork, the company doing the, the conference we are at right now, uh, Go to Aarhus, um, and a company called Samarin, um, where we did uh, UI testing of uh, apps on actual devices. Very nice project. Um, my professional work has mostly centered around uh, automatic uh, testing, making the experience nice. For, for developers, but also doing lots of other stuff, uh, devops and uh, actual feature development
1: as well. Yeah, it's good that you mentioned testing. I saw mm. that your uh, your first talk at the conference is about um, making tests better. Um, can you tell me what that is all about?
2: Yeah, it's. Kind of a luxury problem nowadays, I would think. So, there used to be two kinds of developers, those who write tests and those who don't write tests. And lately, I've only seen one of them, uh, which is the developers that write tests, which is kind of testing has won, I guess. Uh, maybe it's not like that everywhere, but uh, I've only seemed to, to talk to people who, who actually write tests. And that also means um, your test suites are getting bigger and bigger as uh, as you write more production code. And with everything in life, when you get more and more of it, you see different problems uh, as well. Uh, that's only natural. So at GitHub, we, um, we have looked into um, fixing the tests that are flaky. So I'd say t- a flaky test is, it's a little hard to define actually when you really think hard about it. <laughs> but on the surface, a flaky test is one that for no apparent reason is mostly successful, but uh, once in a while turns, uh, turns uh, into a failure.
1: And, it, and then it messes up a test run and you have to rerun yes, it and it exactly. takes time. And yeah.
2: If you have the continuous integration built, um, then the you might have lost stops. 15 minutes of your life and you have to rerun it, which is what most people do, myself included, because then it might turn, turn green and uh, then you just wasted 15 minutes of your life and you just want to deploy this new feature. Um, so yeah, weeding out these... Um, these um, uh, do you, broken tests, yeah.
1: Do you do that for GitHub's own tests, or are you also using um, all the customer data in your data set? No, it's own? only uh, for, for GitHub,
2: and actually only so far only part of uh, GitHub's uh, code base. Okay. So we have a, we have microservices and uh, different projects, but we've been focusing on what we call the monolith, which is a, a right. big Ruby and Rails application. We are planning on, on expanding into other areas, but we... Got a lot of experience doing this, which is why we thought it was worth uh, talking about. So basically taking the tests, looking at them, why are they flaky and kind of putting them into various categories.
1: Um, right. What kind of categories would we have that make tests flaky? What What can we take away as developers from, from your findings here? Yeah. So um, we have a few categories, um, which um, the one we've seen the
2: most is... I think it might be about timing. So um, most developers don't consider the the fact that um, a test takes time. So sometimes you might um, read the the system time in one line and later uh, compare that to the output of a function um, mm-hmm. in, in some some date that's being printed in a report or whatever. And sometimes. Mean in, in between that, just a few milliseconds have passed, then the minutes uh, might have changed to the next minute, and then it's, it's uh, failing. While w- if you run this locally, that's very uh, low probability of, of this test failing. But if you have a really huge code base with a lot of tests, then, yeah.
1: Yeah, if you, have a couple of, a... if you have a couple of hundred tests like that, then exactly, the yeah. probability of having that happen once a week is, yeah. is going up, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: And we have other interesting uh, things like uh, tests leaking states uh, into other tests, which means if you run the problematic test, uh, mm-hmm. that's not the one failing. It's just leaking stuff. So other tests fail, mm-hmm. uh, which can be really hard to... Like to state debug. being
1: left behind in yes. files or in a database
2: or... Both. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whatever. Um, or, yeah, In memory, for example, yeah. uh, changing, the, changing the time zone, you might want to test that in one part of your code that it's right. robust uh, to, to time zones. But, but the there is button. no
1: proper test cleanup or the test yeah. cleanup might have failed yeah. and that leaks yeah. into other tests. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: And you just add more stuff that you can change externally, but you forget to add the cleanup. Um, so.
1: That's also the the type of problems that take a long time to find, right? Yeah,
2: it is. (laughs) And you have to be wary about that. So my manager uh, told me about a thing called the completion principle, which is that um, um, stuff that's not finished causes tension, uh, drains energy, while Mm -hmm. if you finish a task, it it gives you energy. And we started out with several hundreds flaky tests. and. The original idea was basically just delete all these flaky tests that means we have a cleaner code base it's not uh, flaky so people won't have to rerun uh, the tests uh, once in a while right um but we started looking into some of these flakes and once you start scratching the surface it's like uh, opening a Um, murder mystery book or something like that. Suddenly you want to know exactly why this flakes and Crime scene investigation. Exactly. (laughs) And I mean, all technical tasks can be like that. But now we suddenly had hundreds of them. Um, So we did spend some time investigating and that's why we we could draw this learning and make the categories right. but nowadays once we think we know mostly why our tests are failing we try to have a more hands-off um, approach to it right um, basically yeah currently we automatically generate pull requests just deleting this test that's suddenly flaky which seems kind of rough but on the other hand
1: I mean, does the original developer get notified? Yes, like they do. You wrote a flaky test. We're deleting it. But yeah, if you think there's still value here, go write a better test. Something exactly, like that. yeah. So that's our approach. We create the pull request. The code owners are notified. And
2: we let it uh, stay for a couple of weeks, uh, 14 right. days. And if nothing happens, we're going to delete that test. But the hope is, of course, that the code owners will see, okay, this... Either they agree with us, this is not worth uh, keeping because sometimes you
1: actually have duplicate
2: yeah. tests. You already test this uh, code elsewhere.
1: Yeah, especially if you if you write tests on different levels. Yeah, You're right. Yeah. you have you have unit tests and integration yeah. tests and so on and if yeah. certain scenarios are also kind of duplicated exactly. anyway. Yeah. But amazingly often, uh, the, the owning team says, oh yeah,
2: that's right, I, I've noticed this and I'll just make a fix. And they have much more context to actually fix the test. Uh, but it's been amazing in just watching people who get into action because somebody's interested in this right. um, uh, nagging test they've noticed themselves before. But there's another team now, which is our team, uh, kind of pushing them to do it. And I think uh, mentally that that means a lot for them to actually go in and fix it.
1: And where, where do you see this, this project going? Is it something that might get integrated into a GitHub Action that we can run on our own test suites in the future? Or Yeah, so right now we have an
2: internal uh, tool in, in GitHub. But there are third-party tools out there. There's a, a service called BuildPulse, and um, uh, Datadog also has a solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're already a Datadog customer, you, you could implement that. Implement that. So basically... Yeah. The rough idea is you send a JUnit XML file to this service, and it analyzes tests. And if, yeah, it finds stats about which tests are flaky and uh, has this gone better in the last period or worse, and you can see the the worst offenders and that kind of stuff. So you can take action right. in that way. So there's there are tools out there uh, as well, apart from our built-in tools. That's nice. Yeah. So yeah. what
1: what has the overall sentiment been with the developers whose tests uh, whose tests get removed, right? Because yeah, uh, you're writing a tool that tells them whether their tests are good or not. Yeah, um, and takes pretty aggressive action. Yeah. Um, is everybody on board with the mission, or do you also? Run into some resistance there? Yeah, we I, at least I personally was super afraid of doing this because we're
2: like a team of four people, and uh, in GitHub I think there's around fifteen hundred engineers. So it, I felt like it was this four people pushing this strategy uh, to everybody else, and I was sure people would be super angry that we would just delete some of their their code. Uh, but it's been the opposite. I mean, people have reacted like, "Oh, great idea, a nice strategy," and. We haven't had any negative um, feedback about that. Uh, the only thing is that people say, oh, that's a good idea, but can't we fix it by doing this? And then you get kind of dragged in. Um, normally, it's, it's fine because the people with more context, if they take over and fix the test, that's awesome. And we can all uh, yeah. draw learnings from that. Um, but yeah, that's the only issue we've seen. People have been super positive, but they also they don't feel good
1: about deleting the tests. Um, right? And I guess that's natural. But I mean, that's also the result that you want, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like either they fix them or the tests get removed. But yeah, the yeah. end result is a better test suite. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Either way. But that speaks volumes about the engineering culture, I think, then, at GitHub, because you're actually, it's a very personal attack on, the, on your code quality. I, I can imagine yeah. that there's definitely engineering teams where that would not go over well. Yeah, it could be. But I mean,
2: as a clever person once said, test code is also code. So yeah. you have to watch out for that as well and refactor it and make sure it's readable. And yeah,
1: maintain it, basically. So Interesting stuff. Do. I saw that you also have another talk um, <laughs> that I'm really looking forward yeah. to seeing tonight, um, which is about Commodore 64 music. Yes. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, very good question.
2: So I just grew up in the times where at least in Denmark the commodore sixty four was was the home computer people had, so yeah. I was a paperboy back then and earned my own money to get this computer and
1: I think it's probably one of the most sold systems ever, probably, right? yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, but I guess people in other parts of the world had other systems like the Amstrad and uh, what did we talk about the same, yeah
0: the
1: zx spectrum, the
0: spectrum from yeah.
2: Well. yeah exactly yeah. but for me and all my friends where i come from it was a comma 64. and um yeah as time passes you just get nostalgic it's uh, i heard a handsome menace podcast the other day Scott handsome man called nostalgia at Rock, and i think that's very true we just like to dabble in in old stuff but when i go back to the old games The graphics doesn't meet my expectations from memory, it's like...
1: You remember the experience, not the way it looked, right? And gradually
2: we've been accustomed to better and better graphics. Uh, But the music is still amazing, I think. I really like the 8-bit sound, which has also been um, coming into fashion
1: again. That was one of the one of the cool things I think about the Commodore 64. Is we were an IBM PC household yeah. at that time, sound cards did not come default yeah. on that, so it could beep a little, yeah. uh, a little bit from the internal speaker on on the mainboard, yeah. but that was it. Yeah. And then the, these Commodores, I had a friend who had a Commodore, and they came with with a proper sound card in it, yeah. at least for the time. Yeah, Uh, the Amiga also had uh, excellent sound there. And you you had people doing very amazing soundtracks within the limitations of what those things could do.
2: Yeah, and I think it's it's especially impressive on the Commodore 64. I mean, it's 64 kilobytes of total addressable memory. That's not a lot. And in my research for this, I... I looked up the original documentation for the SIT chip. They have a nice table of uh, different frequencies uh, you can set and what that corresponds to in, uh, in nodes that we all know about. Right. But they have this um, little note in, in the paper saying, you shouldn't do this. This requires 192 bytes of memory. <laughs> That's far too much. You can't spend all that memory on, on, on this table. So, do something smarter. And I'm thinking nowadays, how many people get uh,
1: appraisal from their managers for saving 192 bytes? I've only had one project in my professional life where I had to deal with like really small amounts of memory, uh, which was an embedded chip that had eight kilobytes of memory. Um, If you're if you try to um, get that chip to do something and make an HTTP request, for yeah. instance, that, that, that's already pushing the boundaries on, on what you can do. Doing SSL, yeah. But it also makes you appreciate the efficiency of people who work yes. with those kinds of devices because they go about writing code and, and managing memory completely different. Yeah. I, I come from a .NET world. Yeah. I just assume that... Memory and disk is is ubiquitous yeah. and, and, and endless. Yeah,
2: I mean, my laptop has literally a million times uh, the memory that I come oh, sixty four gigs. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: a million. So, yeah, a million
2: yeah, times. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, even more because it's uh, base,
1: uh, yeah. base. 2. yeah. So that's that's something we we stopped optimizing yeah. for at some point along the way. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, I would. It uh, it does. Um, Especially if you're running a lot of containers on a laptop or whatever, um, optimizing that will cost a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, whereas getting more RAM is, compared to developer salaries, yeah. really cheap, yeah. um, which is why we don't do it as efficient, efficiently anymore. Yeah, but I think it's amazing thinking back that back then the Commodore 64 was the new awesomeness, right? It was oh, oh. all this so what, memory and... What other stuff have you run into, like diving into that Commodore 64 world?
2: Um, yeah. Because you're
1: looking at it from a different yeah. angle now than you were looking at it as a kid playing the games, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. so it turns out it's quite interesting when... So there's this online library of Commodore 64 music called the High Voltage sit Collection. Uh, the sit was the name of the, the sound chip back mm-hmm. then. And you can download a big archive, and it's basically all the games you've ever had, Um, the music um, is part of this library. And you can play that in various players uh, like VLC uh, and other online players, and I don't know what. Um, Then I thought, I want to be able to play this, and I want to export it into another format, MIDI format, for example. Because while I like the 8-bit sound, I would also like to um, get kind of the information of the the, uh, music. Like in MIDI format. So I could nowadays, people practice the Mario tune on keyboard and uh, other game tunes. I would like to play some of these games, um, the tunes from them. Uh, So I thought, how hard can it be? It's in one format, I want to convert it to another format. But it turns out this SID format includes executable code. So what you do is you actually run a Commodore 64 emulator, which pokes um, the addresses uh, in the the SID chip. To make it play the sounds just like on a real Commodore 64. Right. So you can take these uh, SID files and actually run them on a Commodore 64.
1: Does that mean that the SID files also have control structures in them?
2: Yes. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's just
1: machine code. Right. So that was the biggest hurdle.
2: <laughs> getting well, yeah,
1: like doing getting that to MIDI, which is just like a timeline space yes, exactly, yeah. uh, sequence of notes and yeah. sounds, right? And then the- yeah. But it makes sense because back then
2: musicians were also programmers. Um, when right. you had to write a soundtrack for, for a game, you also had to supply the the machine code for for playing. Right. So on every frame, so fifty second, fifty times a second in Europe, and sixty times a second in the United States and uh, and Japan, mm-hmm. it would get a callback and do something and,
1: yeah, poke the, the So that kept the whole thing in sync with uh, yes. the uh, refresh rates on the screen.
2: Which also means if you played the same game in the, in the United States, the music would be a tiny bit uh, faster. All oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also the pitch would change that a little bit because the frequency of the, the uh, frequency generator would be changed. Is that something
1: you can now just solve in the um, in the emulators as well? Can you? Emulated in in EU and in US. Yeah, yeah? that's not a big problem.
2: That's basically okay. changing the frequency and yes. and uh, calling it uh, more or less often. Um, so yeah, that's that's been quite fun, kind of doing parts of a Commodore sixty four emulator emulator just to to get out this sounds uh, from from the old games. It's been super fun. A little more digging than I would have.
1: Expected at first, but yeah. but super funny. A little bit of, of technological archaeology. So yeah, I'm exactly. Looking, looking at what people were doing yeah. um, 30, 40 years ago yeah. um, and how they, the problems that they had to deal with, and mm. uh, look at maybe the simplicity of what they were doing, right? Yeah. What do you think in the future is going to happen if we look at our, if, if people do the same for the code that we write today? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. People
2: looking back to 2022, like, oh, the simple times. We only used seven different programming <coughs> languages for this solution, and only three different cloud databases, and I don't know what. I hope we'll keep it simple the next 20 years. But uh, yeah, it's quite amazing looking back at what used to be the state of the art. That values. goes
1: against the common trend at the yeah. moment. Keeping things simple, yeah, right? True. <laughs> We are we are overcomplicating our lives with yeah. with a lot of things in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I mainly blame conference speakers for that, and maybe myself included. Yeah. Um, if you tell a story about certain technology, it solves a certain problem, and people want to use your solution, but they might not have the same problem, so they might look at. Netflix and Spotify and, and yeah, how yeah. they do things, but they don't have the problems at that scale. Yeah, exactly. Simon Brown addressed this very succinctly yesterday, just saying, don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Keep it as simple as possible. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think I still um, uh, I think my Twitter um, like bio says something that I'm a monolith advocate. <laughs> <coughs> and I still stand by it. And uh, you're what? A monolith advocate. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would say, like, if, if you're building something new and you don't even know where it's going to go, like, build something simple that you can push out mm. quick. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean write crap code. I mean, that's a completely different yeah. uh, thing. But, like, construct the code well so that you already implement the dotted lines, like, we might be able to cut here yeah. in the future. Mm. But we're still going to all deploy it as as one yeah. unit of deployment and ship it and see what users do with it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I'm also a big
2: fan of that. I, I like monoliths as well. It's, it's like, for some reason, a lot of people like microservices, but I've never really understood why. I mean, if you have a mature system and you want to, you have something that's really separate from everything else. Well, sure, split it out. But yeah, people who do that from the beginning, they're just going to have a lot of issues refactoring across
1: mm. the network, basically. Yeah, like moving something around becomes a lot harder, right? If yeah, so yeah. you have separate separate services. Yeah. Uh, whereas if it's one code base, you just yeah. move. Around. And another point people forget sometimes
2: is that you can deploy a monolith as microservices. You can just enable yeah. certain endpoints in, in one deployment. Mm-hmm. Um, you can scale that up and down as you want to, um, yeah. depending on the traffic. But That's you, what
1: Stack Overflow did for a okay. long time, right? Nice. They had, yeah, they they called it sca- a scalable monolith or something yeah. like that, where basically every service was the same code base. Mm. Um, but like in orchestration, they um, changed what all the units were doing. Yeah. Um, It was very interesting. They have a very nice engineering blog about how they did things. And they basically were on ASP.NET with Mm. SQL Server for a very, very, very long time, like really boring technology, pushing that to the absolute limits of what's possible. Mm. Um, Yeah, I think we should take inspiration um, from all sides of of those stories Mm. and look at what our problems are before we start applying
2: these techniques yeah. right yeah cause you can separate concerns within a monolith i mean
1: programming languages have had those facilities for many many years of course yeah like patterns like solid and and maybe mediator patterns where you separate some of the services inside the yeah. same code base yeah. right you you said that you were working on the monolith in uh, at github mm. um What does that look like? Is that something you can talk about? Yeah,
2: in some parts, at least. It's basically a Rails um, application. So we do have microservices as well in GitHub, but mostly for for big issues. It's not like every time we do a new functionality, it has to go to a microservice. But sometimes it makes sense. But yeah, the the core functionality of GitHub is in in this monolith, um, which is Rails, and we Keep on the, the edge of Rails, which means that we can contribute back to Rails. I mean, uh, the monolith in GitHub is not open source, but we still contribute uh, to a lot of right. open source projects. We have the uh, core contributors for both Ruby and Rails uh, in GitHub.
1: Oh, that's um, nice.
2: Yeah. So we have the uh, people we can consult with if, if we have issues with Rails. But mostly, all people are, are super happy that we are, we are ahead of the curve there. I think some years ago, it's been discussed publicly as well, we were very much behind on an unsupported version of Rails, but then some people said this,
1: this is not the way to do it. And <laughs> it got upgraded and now we are continually. And and after that, those people moved to the GitHub team or they were already there? I think they were already there. Uh, that's before my time, so I don't know any specifics, right. but there are people who continuously upgrade Rails. And keep us. <laughs> How, is, is that something you you think that GitHub is doing well, like contributing back not only to um, to Rails, but to, to a lot of open source? Yeah, definitely, yeah. I think so. Because that's, that's I think, one of the things that we see in the open source world mm. is um, there's not a lot of contributions coming back, um, both in terms of funding mm. and in terms of code to a yeah. lot of open source maintainers. Mm. They just get a lot of uh, complaints when stuff doesn't do what people expect it to do, right? Yeah, and there have been
2: recent incidents about what can an open source maintainer do with uh, his or her own projects and what can enterprises expect when they just grab some some free project. So there's a lot of good discussion there and I don't have a, a good response to that. No.
1: But if we if we want to keep open source maintainable, I think as an industry we are gonna have to think about rethink yeah. how we how we work with that. Yeah, um, I think a lot of companies could do more mm. uh, instead of just being the consumer, but also giving back. So yeah. I'm happy to hear that at GitHub at least um, there is some of that going on, yeah. which is great. Makes. Open source a little bit more maintainable. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I think a company just grabbing a
2: free product, there are limits to what they can expect in support from mm-hmm. taking a free product. Of course, on the other hand, if you're an open source maintainer, you put stuff out there for free. There are limits to what you can expect from companies using your product. So it's awesome. it's, it's yeah, in both ways, it's um, it's complex. Mm-hmm. Because we all want to do good,
1: but uh, we have limited resources and limited time. And limited time, yeah. And if, if most of your experiences maintaining something are toxic because people are complaining, yeah. but they're not paying you for it, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, those project might uh, projects might get orphaned, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And often you think, oh, this open source project, a lot of companies are using it. It must be well supported, but it turns out it's it's a like random. one person,
1: yeah. And they might drop off the grid. Yeah, exactly. And what to do then? I think that like, pretty much brings us back to where we started at GitHub. Um, I want to thank you so much um, for this talk today. It's uh, been a lo- pleasure. A lot of interesting stuff there. Mm-hmm. And I look forward to the Commodore 64 talk. So am
2: I. I mean, normally I'm super nervous before a talk, but this I'm just really looking forward to it. It's going to be nice and lots of music and this you won't be. learn a single useful thing. I promise you that.
1: That is okay. <laughs> I always love those talks where we where we are taken out of out of our comfort zone. Mm. Um, I've seen talks that had nothing to do with software engineering yeah. that had zero applicable knowledge. Yeah. And I enjoyed every minute of them just because the speaker was passionate about mm. what they were speaking about. Um, so yeah, I think that's a very great way to end mm. go to Aarhus tonight. So yeah, uh, I'll Aarhus. be there. Yeah. Awesome. So thank you very much. Yeah, likewise.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the GoTo Podcast. Head over to Gotopia.tech to discover lots more content from the brightest minds in software development.